You're listening to the first ever Mostly Talk, a business podcast where we take the opportunity to listen and learn from the most interesting people we know. Hi, I'm James Brewster and welcome to the first in a new series of podcasts called Mostly Talk. Learn more about what we do online at mostly.consulting. This week, I'm talking to Brendan McCarran, the Head of Maturing Stocks at Glenmorangie. We chat about lockdown life, being a dad, their latest innovations and whiskey. Brendan McCarran, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, James? Yeah, very well, actually. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me. It's the first uh, mostly talking about session that we're doing, so uh, it's quite a privilege to have you on board and uh, a headline act, if you like, to to kick things off. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I kind of um, I said before we went on air, really, I've got a couple of post-it notes. Just one. It's not it's not an agenda as such. I know I'm a consultant and an engineer, but it's uh, fairly free flowing. And and just to find out a bit more about you, obviously I've worked with you before. Um, I don't think it's it's not controversial to say it was on the innovation project as an engineer. Uh, I kind of played a wee part and a very very small part in helping design that and 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 get involved and meet the team. Uh, a lot of the guys came down from Tain, obviously, to Livingston, and I got to meet you. And uh, there's this cool overlap because one of my best friends at Mold Company. He was uh, good friends with you. You studied together, Neil Robertson. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, right. Neil. And, uh, and so he, he told me a bit about your background before before we worked together, and it was class. You know, you're just very you're very like minded. You're very similar to my mate as well. Just a, a good guy, obviously. And uh, it was fun the project we worked on together. So uh, thanks for keeping in touch and, and agreeing to do this. That's quite cool. Yeah, uh, no bother, no bother. I last seen Neil, I think, on a, a boy stag do in Manchester. So. I think I probably better not tell any of the stories, so I'll probably no. just keep that quiet. <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right now, but uh, yeah, no, a good friend of mine as well. And uh, the only other thing, I had a, a bad gag, but I'm uh, I'm slightly dyslexic, okay, so it's the pronunciation of, of words can be a problem for me. So how I've remembered it is Glen Morangy, it's like orange Morangy, right? Yeah. So my mate said a good way of remembering it, or a good question to ask Brendan as a as an icebreaker is: Is it Glen Morangy or is it McAllen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're talking about a beautiful Highland whiskey here, so it's Glen Morangy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and again, I had to say thanks. It's to some thanks to the guys at um, at the wee beer beer shop in Glasgow on Pollock Shields Road. So they passed on some alcohol-free beers. I'm off it until I'm uh, sober until October because we're expecting our third kid. And I said oh. uh, I'd said to stay sober until uh, until my wife was due. And uh, also, oh no, thanks. I think it's uh, commiserations maybe, but <laughs> it'll be fine. But uh, the other thing was uh, Majestic were really helpful. They sent a, a batch of beers for you. And I know you said um, drinking responsibly and you've got work tomorrow, so you, but you you might have a beer later type thing. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And they sent me, me beer that had alcohol on it, so I'll have one. I'll have one or two of <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, thanks again for joining me. But I want to kick off, uh, just find out about, about how's lockdown been for you? Have you you're a family man, obviously. You've got a son, right? You're... 
Yeah, yeah. So I've been married um, six years. So six years married, and we, me and Susie, have a, a six, uh, a three-year-old boy. So oh, wow. uh, we boy called Jamie, and it's been great, and it's been rubbish, just like everyone else, I think. So uh, work-wise, our business is good. You know, the whiskey business is, as, a, as a whole is, is is looking okay through COVID. Yeah. So it's been a real challenge, and there's a lot of complications, and I can go into that. But, I mean, you see it all around. People are changing what they're doing because we're all stuck at home. But people are starting to have, you know, I've, I've done so many Zoom whiskey tastings with, with friends, not just through work, but just people opening up bottles of whiskey and talking about what they can taste, what they can't. And I'd even say probably, you know, putting that bottle of whiskey away for, I'll wait for my mate's birthday or I'll, I'll wait until all my mates are around at my house and I'll open it then. Well, they, those days are probably going to be a little bit off. They'll come back, but they're a little bit off in the future. Yes. So I'm yeah. seeing people more often going, do you know what? It's Friday night. I'm in. Me and my wife are having a date night or something. Or me and my partner are having a date night. And I'm going to crack this 18-year-old or this 12-year-old or this or this. So our sales are actually, you know, not, that's not going to be a record-breaking year by any means. But considering what's going on in the world, I'm in a very, I'm very lucky um, to be in the position that I am working for a great company uh, and we're going to get through it. I think everyone's going, going to get through it. Yeah. The, main, the main outlet, just the supermarkets themselves, I guess, for your, your product. Yeah. Well, yeah. supermarkets, uh, Majestic, wine stores, um, yeah. in, anywhere that stocks whiskey, really. And, and even, I mean, even like, so me and my wife, um, my wife doesn't really like whiskey. Um, so it always makes me smile. If you, meet a, if you meet a whiskey ambassador, if you meet people who work in the whiskey industry, they always say, um, there's, there's a whiskey for everyone. There's a whiskey for everyone. You just haven't found it yet. And to that, I say, that's just not true. You know, because no. I have tried and tried and tried and my wife just will not drink whiskey. It's just not for her, which is fine. But she drinks a lot of, not a lot, but she quite likes red wine. So even we've found that the way that we buy red wine has changed. You know, people yes. are now delivering much more. It's, yeah. it, it just, we would never dream of ordering wine to get sent to your house before this, but companies are adapting because it's the way yes. to do it safely yeah. and the same is happening for whiskey i love all the innovations that have come about although some businesses are struggling others have just seen it as an opportunity and just like change their business model slightly whether it's the local italian restaurants now a coffee shop that people can <laughs> swing by when they're walking their dog and pick up a, a cup of coffee or yes yeah. like loads of innovations like that they're quite quite clever and, um, oh yeah, yeah definitely right. restaurants i mean michelin star restaurants are delivering to your house now you know if you're yeah. lucky enough yeah. to get it in time so it's great. The, the way that people adapt to it's great how people adapt to a terrible situation. But, yes. Yeah. Yes. And then, yeah, I mean that, but I mean also working from home, I, 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 most of my job is, is nosing uh, and tasting and blending whiskey, you know, to make our core range of expressions like going more into original that I've got right here. Yes. Uh, um, yeah. So my office, this, I'm actually in the dining room, but we're now just calling it the office. And it now just looks like this. I just get, I just got all these little sample bottles coming in all the time. And this is, you know, just new batches of whiskey that have been made up. So normally these have come to the sensory lab in Edinburgh or in Livingston. And how, how, all, aged, how all aged are they? They're, they're 10, 10 so or so years older. Got a 10 year old here. Got, a, got like a, an eight year old whiskey that's gone into a different cask. So we're checking it before it goes in the cask to make sure it's yes. okay. Uh, this one is 17 years old, uh, going into a different cask again to become something in a few years' time. 
this one's 12 years old, and this one's 14 years old. So it's just every week different batches arrive. You know, I've got and then, a very and then to give everyone, postman. <laughs> to give everyone a bit of an insight, so you're a chemical engineer, right? So I, uh, I'm quite passionate about getting uh, kids, you know, boys and girls in schools passionate about engineering. And yes. uh, how did you find the path of like, studying engineering yourself? And it's a, it's like a, a chemical engineer is a tough degree to get, right? You had to yeah. Strathclyde Uni. Yeah, so I, I, chemical engineering was, I, I would strongly recommend that everyone does it, but um, it's, it, it's, it's really tough as well. So I, I had some real hard couple of years trying to get through and scraping by the skin of my teeth and certain things, other things I could get straight away. It was, so, very much, it was very much like typical, very good at chemistry, very good at maths, what we're going to go yes, from here. Did you, that was did it. you, that you was didn't it. have a clue whether you wanted to go after that, right? Yeah, so randomly, randomly, I actually, uh, um, I won like a, an award for a, an essay on history. So I was really into history. Um, so I was like, I said, I'll, I'll, I'll do history. I'll do history at uni. And then it was like my, my older brother was like, well, what do you want to do when you leave university? What job do you want to do? And I was like, well, I, I don't really know. He's like, well, why are you going to uni then? And I was like, I think I'm going to some expected to, you know, if you got, um, if you get enough hires and you go to uni, it's almost like the done thing. And then he says, well, the whole point of like, going to uni is to, you know, help you get a vocation or get a career or get some. So he's like, do you want to be a researcher? And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And he was like, do you want to be a teacher? And at the time, I was like, I'm, I'm to think that I now speak in public quite a lot, but at the time, I thought the thought of standing up and speaking in front of people horrified me and terrified yes, me yeah. the same amount. So I was like, God, no, I don't want to be a teacher. So he was like, right, so even though you're good at history and you enjoy history, which I still do, I'm still obsessed with the History Channel and stuff. Um, he went, what else? And it's maths and chemistry that was good at after that. So it was, um, I think my choices were like environmental engineering as a backup, pharmacy as a backup, and then chemical engineering was my preferred. And then I got the marks, so... Chemeng it was, Chemeng yeah. it was. And then even your history complements your career path of now, right? Because the, <laughs> the history in, in whiskey is phenomenal and, and you look at an organisation like Grand Marangi or Ardbeg, like the rich history, you know, it, it kind of lends itself to that and the fact you can articulate yeah. on it and talk about it with passion, it's quite, it's quite cool. Yeah, you end up with, you know, pretty much everything that we do is innovative but respecting the heritage of our two brands or two distilleries. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's quite a lot of the history and I'll do some of my own research in the background. We have an archivist who's just recently retired, but I'd spend a lot of time with the archivist, just some of it for work and some of it just purely out of um, an interest that I have. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, then, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed chemical engineering, but it was... I, I would strongly encourage everyone to do it. Great people there, um, great lecturers. I did it at Strathclyde University with with Neil uh, and a good few other people, and then like great social as well. I'm an ex proud proud winner of the Frank Morton football uh, as well. I've so heard of it. Yeah, it's notorious. Yeah, <laughs> the Frank Morton where you send a couple of everyone every uni sends their teams and you play five a side football, rugby. There's racing. There's all sorts of games, and our team, Strathclyde Uni team, won the Frank Morton in Manchester. I think that was like my greatest achievement to date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've still got time to trump it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, no, no. I'm on a. I'm, I'm on the downward now. I'm on the downward. <laughs> <laughs> the other one was, uh, you know, the options that you have. It's kind of overwhelming. You get a chemical engineering degree or a good engineering degree. You know, you've proven yourself to be quite good at maths. You know, you can write a good report. You can analyze things. You know, so. 
it really does keep your options open, right? So you're, and that's kind of one of the ones, the worst things you can do at that young age is specialize too early. You want to just sort of go into to the world, just best place to do, to do stuff really. I found like even in Scotland, there's a really funny, it was, it was very, it was set up with good intent, but it was everybody just go and study what you want, you know, have, have free money. It's free to study in Scotland, which is great. But then you see the problem that people just land themselves in debt and right. uh, you were ne- not necessarily skilled for the job market, skilled yeah. to face the job market, whereas like engineering and, and, and doing STEM subjects in particular, it really did give you a good chance of, of getting a job. Not to say that other jobs aren't important or other uh, degrees aren't important, but it, it, it very much like scattergun approach is everyone go and study whatever you want in life. And it didn't necessarily align to where the job market is, right? It's kind of a... Because yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think my brother would mind me saying, but my brother got, you know, he was very academically, very academic, very intelligent, and he got, I think he got five A's or something like that, so, uh, which is unheard of at my school, because I grew up in Coatbridge, and our school was useless. It's gone now, it doesn't exist anymore, so I can say that. Um, <laughs> but he, he got five A's, which I, I, I'm pretty sure they put a statue up for him. Um, <laughs> so what do you do when you get five A's? What does the career advisor tell you? What does everyone tell you? You do law or medicine. Yeah. Yes. Law or medicine. And um, even though he got A's in both, um, he was more English leaning than maths leaning. So he did law. So off he went and he did law. And then he realized like three and a half years in or something, he's like, I don't want to be a lawyer. You know, I don't want to be a lawyer. But when you leave a law degree, well, not quite that's it, but it's pretty close I think at the time it was something like 90% of all people with a law degree became lawyers. So he was in yeah. like 10%. And then you're suddenly competing against everyone else for these more general qualifications. So I think his own experience, but he's now, you know, he's now doing his own thing and uh, very happy and, you know, got everything he needed to get and, you know, had a great career. But I think he'd realised that when he was leaving uni, I was just starting uni because we're about five years apart. Mm. And so that's why he was like, do you really want to be a historian? And I was like, well, God, I didn't think about that. I just, the highest mark I got was in history, so that's what I'm doing. So he was able to give me this, and that steered me towards chemical engineering, and thank God he did. Yeah, you need people like that in life, right? And you can look back in your career and your life and your where you've went, and it's just like all it takes is that person with a bit of, uh, a wee bit of knowledge, a wee bit of insight, and you can go off in a slightly different yeah. direction. It's quite powerful. Yeah. It's cool. Me- mentoring. Mentoring is like one of the big things in my life, like, having the right mentors at the right time, whether they're formal or informal, and it's people who give you the right pointers. I think yeah, it's massively important. And you've been very fortunate at Glen Marangi, right? You've got uh, Dr. Bill Lumsden, who's, who's famous throughout the whole industry, right? You've, yeah. You're kind of his, his right-hand man, if you like, and you've, you've been Aye. able to pick up a lot Aye. from him, I guess, right? So I, guess, I guess that's why I was hired. So I suppose I was hired as, like, you know, nothing in life's guaranteed, but I think the company had said, you know, what happens if Bill, you know, gets hit by a bus or... Or actually, Bill just gets on a bus and buggers off because he goes, right, um, I've been doing this for 25 years. I want to try something different, which yeah. I don't think he would do. But, you know, they just were wondering, what's the contingency plan? And they didn't really have anything internally, anyone the right age, right experience or, or desire, frankly, you know, for different people. So they, they started a campaign to look for a, I didn't know this, but they were looking for someone to replace Bill. And then I seen this job that just looked interesting. It was kind of like, you know, a whiskey maker but with a, a technical part to it and uh, some operations roles. So it sounded right up my street. And 
before I joined Glenmondia was a distiller mostly. So it'd be a distillery manager, a maltings manager. At that point, I was on Isla as a, as a group manager. So uh, running two distilleries and a maltings plant and some engineering facilities. That was with so Diageo, I, is that right? Like they have a lot yeah, more distilleries. Yeah, oh. yeah, so that was eight years with Diageo. But, okay. I, but I was moving off of Isla. So I knew that I was going to be moved, but they couldn't tell me where I was moving to. And I also knew I was getting I was getting married in the March. So I was kind of going, look, I know you don't know where I'm moving yet, but you're really going to have to tell me something. You know, am I coming off Isla or am I not? And it just took too long. It was just one of those things. And then this job appeared. So normally I wouldn't have had my head turned, but this just appeared. And I was like, this looks like it could well be eventually um, a success at a bill if everything goes right. So I took yeah. a punt. I took a yeah. punt. And then, and then I got the job. And now... It's uh, six years. I'm six years into this role now. So as a kind of maybe successor to Dr. Bill, but definitely someone who's, you know, a senior member of his whiskey creation team. Uh, yeah. So involved yeah. in quite a lot of stuff, you know, nosing, tasting. And you had, uh, you had like a, you had like a, from even just from speaking to you, you know, your passion for the, the, the brand and whiskey in general, but you've had a cool career, like the stuff you've done to date, you know, traveled the world, you're ambassador for the, the company, you know, you're, you're doing, you've got lots of elements to your job, but what makes you particularly good at it? Do you have a certain taste? Do you have certain taste buds that I don't? Or is it something that people can pick up or a nose for it? You know, is it? I, I think it's a bit of both. So <clears throat> I realised I had a really good sense of smell when I was quite young. But I know it's broken. No... I'll be able to see from that angle, but I, I probably don't know. I probably can't. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, I used, to be, I used to play football for years, so I've, I've broke my nose a couple of times as well. So, uh, fortunately, it's, it's, it's no broke that way. It was just Is that a bad batch behind you then, Brendan? Do you actually know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm lucky it doesn't work that way, yeah. Um, but no, um, just, just growing up, you always used to realise I had quite a good sense of smell. I mean, my wee brother, he had like a way better sense of smell. So, he used to be the one, we'd all be in the car, so I'm from quite a big family, so five kids. And the parents, you're all packed up in the back of this car, hurtling across countryside to go on holidays. And it used to be my wee brother would go, oh, God, the smell, the smell. And it, it took us a couple of times, but eventually we caught on that he had like a like a, a manure detector. So he could tell that it was like a stink coming up. So we used to follow <laughs> his instincts and like roll up the windies. So he had the best nose in the family, but I think I had probably the best smell after him. And funnily enough, like, so where I grew up in Coatbridge, the house was at the end of a road, and across the road from us was a chocolate factory. So I grew up next door to a chocolate factory. So it wasn't Willy Wonka's, but it was Lee's. <laughs> um, Lee's, still going. Coke oh. Bridge's finest export, I think. Uh, Lee's uh, chocolate bars. The, the mint, isn't it? The mint, I said, the mint, the mint cream. Yeah. The, the mint cream, they do um, snowballs. Yes. They do macaroons, and I'm called yeah. Macaron as well, but there was no... There was no trademark broad bottle there. <laughs> um, I do all sorts of tablet. They do loads of tablet and fudge. It's but quite funny. Like, even uh, you've got uh, Tonics is another big one, right? It, it kind of it's not too far away, but it's not big, road in Uddingston. It's like yeah, big, five miles away. Big. It's Lee's classified as a global brand. Would it be known out of outside of Scotland? Aye, aye, aye. Lee's is in Australia. I used to see it in Australia quite a lot, <clears throat> but okay. I still have. So I am. Super sensitive to two aromas that show up in whiskey. So there's like a tiny little bit of coconut in Glenmorangie, but I'm already aware that I notice it more than most people do. Okay. So 
and it's they used to grind up coconuts. They used to have these big mills that ground up the coconuts to make macaroons. And okay. I could smell it coming in the house every morning when I was growing up and going and I used to walk by it to go to school. So is this, is this what got you the job interview chat? Did you talk about your macaroons in school? No, nope. <laughs> never <laughs> mentioned that. Never mentioned that. <laughs> and, um, but the other one is used to make mint creams and I still to this day I love everything mint. I love absolutely everything uh mint that you could imagine. Just like I wouldn't, have, uh, I wouldn't have sent you beers, I would have sent you a pack of uh, after eights instead. I should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe shift a wee bit, I'm just seeing a bit of light coming in here. Let's go with that. Yeah, um, and is is Dr. Bill of a similar ilk? I, I've never met Bill before uh, before. Is he like that like same sense of smell? Is it driven by that really here? Yeah, so quite quite a lot of the job is you've got to be very creative, you've got to be quite imaginative, but you need to have you can have all the experience of making whiskey in the world. And Dr. Bill told me this at my interview, but they you have to pass a test. Okay. So the test was in three stages. So there was like one that was just like a whole series of glasses of water that just looked like. So you had to drink them and some of the waters just tasted like water. Uh, some were salty. And I don't mean mega salt, it's just I had like a, a one crunch of salt put into it. Hmm. Um, some were savoury, so they had like a sort of fatty oil added to them. Some were sweet, so they had sugar added to them. And some were bitter, so they had like a squeeze of lemon into them, like one tiny drop of lemon, I should say. Yes. And there was yeah. quite a few of them. So you had to identify them as sweet, sour, savoury, or plain. But also okay. they didn't tell you those were the answers. You had to work it out in your head as you drank them. Because yes, it tasted in the different areas of your tongue and the different taste buds that you have on there. Yeah. Um, and then after that, the test was, it was like 25 little pieces of cotton wool that had been put in the test tubes and they'd been dipped in different sensory oils. So one would smell of lemons, one would smell of oranges. And try that blindfolded, like cut up a lemon and cut up an orange and get someone in your house to mix them around and do it blindfolded. They smell so similar that wow. it takes okay. quite a bit to work it out. Um, and then all sorts of spices and, and flavours and, and elements and all that sort of stuff. And did you, and then did the you final get any of them right? Did you get any of them right? <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I got the job, <laughs> so, uh, I, I think I got, I got 24 out of 25, which is not oh, wow. bad going. Not That's bad. Good. Uh-huh. And then um, the last test was just two whiskies. So two whiskies blind. I'm pretty sure one of them was Glenmondia original because I was always a fan of that whiskey before I joined. Okay. And the other one, I've no idea what it was, no idea, but it was smoky, I can remember that, so it would have been an Ardbeg single cask or something, and I just had to write out tasting notes, estimate the strength of it, write oh, the primary wow. notes on the nose, write out the, the, the flavours I'm getting, add water, see how it developed, and write out uh, the casks that were used to make it. Um, so yeah, so yeah, all of that, and, and it seems like I passed because I got the job. Yeah, no, congratulations. How long has it been now? You've Four or five years, or a bit more than that? It's uh, six Six, six years, okay. yeah. It just, then, went, it just went six years in June, so almost exactly six years. And is it so? You're like the target market, if you like, for whiskey. It's it's typically kind of an old man's drink, right? And is that is it a problem for the industry? You you kind of want to grow grow your market. Do you want to get young people excited about it? Do you want to get women excited about it? What's the sort of uh, strategy, if you like, for for not just Glenmorangie but other other companies as well? Do you, yeah, it's. That's the traditional market, and that's the market as you'd probably see it in Scotland as well. Yeah. You got to remember, in, in Scotland, it frustrates me a little, but at the same time, you know, go figure, I, I get it. But in Scotland, people don't really drink whiskey. You know, they drink they drink vodka or they'll drink um, 
rum or they'll drink beer or they'll drink, they'll drink stuff that's from other countries. So people in Scotland aren't huge drinkers of whiskey. So when you think about it as a global market, it's very different in every country that you go to. Yes. So yes. there's one country, like Taiwan, this tiny little island um, just off the coast of China, about 22 million people there. But yeah. in Taiwan, they, they sell single malts more than they sell blended malts, you know, which is yeah. like, or blended whiskies, I should say. It's kind of unheard of, but I, I see it. You see um, a group of 20 year olds. So like, let's say, you know, a group of six or eight 20 year olds, like guys and girls, probably all at university together or they're all in their first job together. And on a night out, they will go into a liquor store and buy a single bottle of single malt. And that's their, that's their drink for the evening. You know, so if I was coming around your house to watch the football, I'd probably show up with some cans of beer, um, yeah. some alcohol-free beer if you're off it till October. Um, <laughs> or I might bring, if I'm coming around with my wife and we're going to have dinner, so I know you're making food, you know, I might bring a bottle of white wine or a bottle of red wine or both. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I'd probably only bring a whiskey, this is generally in Scotland, I'd probably only bring a whiskey if it was your birthday, you know, mm. or it was a gift, what is it, a Christmas gift or a birthday or a moving in. Yes. But in certain countries like Taiwan, it is the drink of choice. You know, it's the thing that you're going to have. You and just so, sit and open it that night and then everyone takes their pours as, as the night goes on. And it's very hard to like, uh, you know, that's a big sort of cultural trend there. And it's very hard to like, to beat that, isn't it? You know, you've just got to pick your battles and, 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 and really market it accordingly, right? You, you probably have a yeah. different marketing campaign that runs in Taiwan than you do in, in Glasgow, perhaps, you know? It's like, Aye, well, again, so, so I get to... I get to join some of the marketing campaigns as like, you know, one of the people associated with making it, which is great. But yeah. I just like, I like talking and I know, I know the products inside out because I'm lucky enough to be, you know, behind the curtain, you know, helping to make them and I know all the secrets and I know what goes into them. But the actual marketing strategies and who markets, I mean, that's the marketing department that do that. I'm lucky enough that I just need to show up, make sure I've had my hair cut, put on a decent suit, and, uh, and tell people the story of the whiskey. But it, you're right, it does vary country to country. Um, I still see in certain countries, um, and it is a bit of a trend, but it's sort of more marketed towards men than women. That annoys the hell out of me. I get asked often, will you ever make a whiskey that women all like the taste of? And I'm like, well, yes, we, we do. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I mean, like, how can you think an entire gender of people will all like one taste more than another so that annoys me and then the other bit is two seconds um, brendan uh two seconds i don't know what happened there i think my speaker that's uh, okay i uh yeah sorry uh, my speaker just died there i'll uh, we'll cut that wee, wee bit out you okay that's okay yeah, yeah i was checking something there's just a wee glint you know the way that the sun's moved Let's go. And then, uh, yeah, like, uh, where's your, like, the Louis Hemisy Group, Louis Vuitton Hemisy Group? Is that, is that all? They have much of an influence in terms of your marketing. Is it a corporate machine that sits in behind the two brands? No. It's very much. No, no, no. We, we, we're our own company. Um, so the Glenmont company is parent, is holding, is the Louis Vuitton Moat Hennessy Group, so LVMH. But, but no, no, we run independently as our own, own company. Okay. So 
We have Glenmondry Distillery in the Highlands. Uh, we have Ardbeg Distillery on Isla. And we have our bottling hall for our products is in Livingston. So Livingston yeah. just, just it's, about, it's about 10 miles from Edinburgh Airport. And then in the centre of Edinburgh, we have um, our HQ. Um, that's where I'm based. That's where my sensory lab is. That's where all the samples come to. Yes, um, and yes. there we have um, our executive board. So we have a CEO who's based in Edinburgh. Um, we have a, the, his team, so the FD, the HRD, um, Bill, Dr. Bill, my boss, so the whiskey creator, the director of whiskey creation, the operations director, the head of sales, and, and everyone else. They all sit um, in Edinburgh. So that is our entire company, which is how it works. And then that small company plus all the other small companies that make up Moat Hennessy, they all report into Paris for, okay, you know, end of year reports and stuff like that. Yes, but yeah. <clears throat> so it's, it's a great relationship because, I mean, genuinely, I'll be completely honest, I love my job, but I'd love nothing more than to set up my own distillery, build my own distillery style, release my own whiskies, but it's not cheap. It's a, it's a very expensive business. The copper costs a lot. The barley costs so much. The energy required is huge. And just the time, you know, to have enough cash to get through all of that time is like super challenging. So yes. yeah. it's great to be part of LBMH because we get the money that we need to get the best casks, to buy the most expensive stuff when we need it, to make new and innovative, super interesting products. But it's great, so they give us all this money to do amazing things, but they don't interfere either. We've never been um, told to make a whiskey in a certain way. We yeah. are we are left under Bill, um, under Bill's direction. We're left as a team to create what we think will be exciting and delicious. Frankly, it's a funny career path in the way because our, our career in, in general, in that you know you 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 put all this effort into to work out what it's going to taste like but your the end product doesn't come for for 18 years in some cases and and dr yeah. bill he's he's been in the company 25 years there's there's things in bottles that he's probably not tasted yet right um yeah 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 that's or, true and it's, as an end it's product. also i mean sometimes you have a very long career but sometimes people are in the career you know you could be you could have an 18 year career in whiskey which is a pretty long career hmm. um but it depends on what role you've done and if you've moved distilleries you could be in a situation where you've laid something down but never seen the end product, if you like. Yes. But I guess the way to think of it, so as a, as a whiskey maker, so I used to be a distillery manager. Um, when you're a distillery manager, you're making the raw spirit. So you're making the raw spirit. Um, the whiskey creation team check that raw spirit and make sure that it's to specification, make sure that it smells right. Then yeah. it goes into casks. So as a, as a, if you're a distillery manager your entire life, which is one one um, career path I almost took, so I was a distillery manager for eight years. You could probably argue that I didn't actually make any whiskey, you know, because I made spirit that went into casks and it takes a minimum of three years, but it's much more like 10 years or more of uh, distillation that's required for it to become, uh, of maturation, excuse me, required yes, for it to become a, a whiskey. Whereas the whiskey creation team, this role, what's great about it is you're, you're sampling stuff that's, 18 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 25 years old every day and yeah. putting together these whiskies that then, you know, come out into the, into the market. And, and how are you seeing your international markets right now? Because a lot of the sales that come from, I guess, your China, Singapore, it's through duty-free perhaps. Is that, is that true or is it, is it very, you know, how is, would it be a third of the market from, from airports? Is it? 
Because that's oh no, 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 not that much. No, nowhere near that much. Okay. But no, no, our, our biggest market by quite some way is America. Okay. And and America has been really resilient. Um, yeah. Again, um, our our on trade sales in America are, are very low because the on trade's been closed in a lot of places. But yeah. it's been kind of replaced by more people buying something nice to enjoy at home because they're going to be spending more time at home and interacting with neighbours or, or going on Zoom calls and stuff like that. So, so no, no, America's been strong. Travel retail has been, you know, basically it's on hold for this yes. year. Yeah. Certainly for the first half of the year, you know, it's just finished there. So, yeah, travel retail's down, but most of our sales are domestic all around the world, with America being the biggest by, by quite a way. And in terms of your competition in America, are you kind of would you say you're leading the way? Or like, there's obviously a lot of sentiment between the you know Americans love Scotland and the UK in general, I guess. But you know it's quite competitive because all your your big brands in Scotland will be doing the same thing as you guys, right? You're, yeah. Yeah. Well, it depends on it depends on how how you want to lead the way. So I think volume wise, the biggest um, by volume of cases is Glenfiddich. Um, great whiskey, absolutely brilliant whiskey, but one of the reasons they're number one and we're not is, is it's mathematically possible for them to be number one and it's mathematically impossible for us to be number one because of the size of our distilleries and how much yes. stock we have available. You know, you're constantly trying to have a crystal ball and predict the future. Mm. So, but it's, it's brilliant whiskey. Um, you could argue, you know, we, we're not really, I think we're the fourth biggest whiskey, single malt scotch in the world. So I think we're number four for Glenmorangie. And way smaller for our big because it's a smaller distillery. Yeah, but we, yeah. we don't get hung up. We I, I don't ever see Glenmorangie being the number one single malt whiskey in the world by volume. And frankly, I don't care. Um, yeah. I would love it to be the number one winner of you know the best whiskey in the world every year, or people's number one whiskey that they've ever drank. And I get to meet people who say that often, which yeah, is yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, we're still a business, so we want to grow. We want to grow a couple of percent a year, but to go to number one, we'd need to like start going double growth every year on year on year. And no one in the company's got an interest for that. No one has that ambition. And and then even since your your Louis Vuitton brand came associated with you, you're aiming for premium. Is that right? You can have to, is that change in strategy that that the company had, or was um, that? You cannot ask in the wrong person. You know, yeah. need the more I, history, I guess. Yeah, I can't really talk about the last six years or yeah. and I think sometimes people just attach, but definitely it was a different business in the early 2000s. We had three distilleries. We also owned a different distillery. Um, we're doing a lot of blending. So when you mix together yeah. distilleries, yeah. Uh, whiskies from different distilleries, um, you make a blend and blend sell for cheaper because they tend to have grain whiskey in them. So we're doing a lot of deals like that. So lower price, higher volume blends and stuff. Yeah. But what, what happened was when LVMH took over, there was a trend for single malts becoming more popular. So single malts sold as single malts, not blended. And so they were able to make the decision of, right, stop, stop what you're doing with the blends. Let's just focus on single malts. And then that kind of that took the shackles off of Dr. Bill in quite a yes. way because yeah. suddenly he could then commit all his stock to making amazing Glenmorangies. And then at the same time, Ardbeg, was just reopened in the year 2000, like reopened in 1998, 97. Okay. So the, the big commitment for our big was grow, grow slowly and responsibly 
so that we can start to build up some stock of this amazing whiskey and yeah. try and make sure that it never closes its doors again because it had often opened its doors and closed its doors over the years. Okay. So I guess you could say that the strategy was, I don't know about what premium, because define premium, super premium, uber, you hear all these words, but I'd say the strategy definitely was move away from blends, move away from volume, and let's just focus on our own distilleries and focus on our own strengths, and that was single malts. So now okay. you find we, we only make single malts, so we only make Glenmorangie and Ardbeg, and it's, that's been the case for the six years that I've been at the company. And there's been expansions at both distilleries, is that right? And was it kind of a similar theme with innovation, or is it is it again back to volume for for Ardbeg so, or more stills, I guess. So there there hasn't been an expansion at Ardbeg. Um, so Ardbeg's been around since 1815, and it's never expanded. Okay. So it's going to expand. So okay. right now it makes about one million liters of alcohol, which makes it one of the smallest distilleries in Scotland and one of the smallest distilleries on Isla. Mm. Um, and it's, it, it used to make one million litres in the 1800s so to give you an idea it used to be oh. uh, the superstar volume almost of Isla and everyone else moved on and Ardbeg just kind of had this complicated history you know really complicated history um, but these days now people are just like wow it's amazing so we're going to increase how much we make mm. but again for Ardbeg we have no interest in becoming you know quadruple the size of what we are right now or trying to become the number one whiskey, the smoky whiskey in the world or anything like that. But it does just kind of feel like time. So right now we're, we're running at full capacity, just over a million litres. And when you run at full capacity, it means you don't really have any time to innovate. You don't have time to try things. You don't have time yes. to do weird and wonderful trials in like December and January like we used to. So we want to create a bit of extra space. We do want to make more spirit because Frankly, everything we make sells out so quickly that people are going, we really want more of it, we really want to try it. This is it's getting hard to get enough of it. So we're going to upper production a little bit and then we're going to use the spare time that we get to do quite a lot of innovation. And frankly, when you have two stills like we do at Ardbeg and it's a double distillation, yeah. the only way to expand it is to put in two more stills. So quite a lot of people are going, oh, they're doubling their capacity. Oh, here we go. It's just going to go crazy now. But it's, there's no other way. There's no other way to increase capacity. So we will go from making just over a million to making just over two million. Mm-hmm. But we won't be at that production volume for quite some time. You know, we're not yes. going to make okay. it that amount. We'll just have a nice bit of over capacity. And that's when me and Bill and the rest of the team can go in and get our grubby yeah. hands and stuff and do something a bit weird and wonderful and different. And it's an exciting time to be in the company, right? It's, it's lots going on in terms of expansion and just sort of cool, you know, things are changing. It's good, right? Yeah, it's, 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 I joined the whiskey industry in 2006. And frankly, it's been an exciting time since then. So uh-huh. when I joined in 2006, um, I was really lucky and I got to be involved in a project to build Diageo's first new distillery, Rose Isle, in like forever. And then we did the research and we turned out that Rose Isle, which I worked on the design of, so I did the like, mass and energy balance, do the proper chemical engineering work. Yes. It's quite funny because, yes. I mean, I, I struggled to get through my degree, so I was a useless engineer, but I worked it out and it got me to <laughs> I did all my, I did all my whiskey exams and it did work and it made what it had to. But that project was, that was the first distillery built in Scotland in 40 years. Wow. So 
I joined it. I didn't realise it at the time, but I joined at this brilliant sort of time for whiskey. Yes. And I worked with so many people and I talked about mentors earlier. And my mentor was this guy, Mike Jappy, who sadly passed away a few years ago. But um, just someone that I clicked with and he took me under his wing. But he also, without going on about it or without being negative about it, but he taught me about what happened in the 80s and in the 90s, where whiskey, frankly, there was overproduction. People yes, got bullish yes. and they laid down what they call the whiskey lock. So it was whiskey locks. So just like, warehouses full of scotch that there was no way there was the appetite all around the world to buy it. So what happened? Companies started running out of money. Distilleries mm. started to close. And when a distillery closes, I mean, sometimes, not to get over dramatic, but that's entire communities that are decimated, yes. you know? Yeah. It's, you're either directly or indirectly employed by that distillery. So yes, when it goes, yeah. it has a huge effect. So I had not realized that the 80s and the 90s was a really, really tough time to get through. And then all these people that I got to work, and most of them um, are still around now, and many of them are like really good friends who have stayed in touch with the whole time. They went through that. So it's great that they are there to remind me that we're in this brilliant time and it's like something to be really thankful for. And I'm always sort of trying to always remember, what, you know, not to take it for granted. It's like an amazing time to be working in whiskey. Yeah, and then do you see like the, it is a global recession, you could probably call it that, what we're going to go through, or certainly there's cracks showing in, in the UK right now. Do you, do you worry about that in terms of sales and, and, and how long it'll take for things to pick back up, even international travel? If, although you say it's not a big part of the business, the duty-free is a, a factor, right? Whether it's 10% or 15% of your business, it's yeah, junk, right? It, it definitely is. It, it's a factor, but it, it's not something that's going to... It would just yeah just slow down your growth if travel retail went away. I, I don't think it will. I think travel retail will come back in some form. Yeah. And maybe there'll be a readjustment of what goes on. For a recession and stuff, um, I, I, I do personally worry. I mean, there's, there's nothing pleasant about recessions. And I have friends in different industries. You know, me and my wife, we have a, we have a young kid and, you know, probably planning to have another one. And, you know, uncertainty is, is not a nice thing. There's just not much nice. Um, but to try and take the personal um, worries out the way, I mean, the whiskey industry is is robust, and I think there's there's a lot of great people working it, and the quality, and this is not just us, but our competition as well. The quality of our whiskey is outstanding, and yes, I think it yeah. it's it's been around for 250, 300 years already, and I think it is for a reason. You know, I think it's the people who do it the quality of it and the reputation that it has. Yeah. So I can see it being a cu tough couple of years, but the future of Glenmorangie, the future of the Scotch whisky industry, I think is, I think it's in good hands. Yeah, and I have, uh, I'm quite lucky to be quite good friends with David Parson. So he's at Carantines mm -hmm. and um, obviously a big uh, logistics company. They, they transport half the spirit in Scotland. And it's just, yeah. you know, he tells some of the stories just about the culture and, and uh, what a great industry it is to be in, right? It's it's a real sort of family culture and and take care of your people and people tend to have careers in, in uh, I guess the guys in Tain in particular have probably been there, you know, their whole life. And, you know, it's a it's a career path that's probably quite rare in many, many, in many respects yeah. today. Most people change quite regularly, you know? It's the same in um, most whiskey companies, to be honest with you, though, yeah. the... the the standard times of service are like, you know, averages of 25 years, the average. 
So don't get me wrong, there's still things that are tough. So if you're in a bottom hole, you can be on your feet for a very long time. And yeah. it's, it's like, it can be quite intense, especially because whiskey sales uh, have peaks at certain points in the year. So it's a tough, tough job being in a bottom hole. But it is, it's a great company and it's a great job to have. Um, the same for if you're working in a distillery. You know, there can be, well, it's a 24-7 operation. So there's certain times where you're, you're on at night, you know, and you've got like a long night, but you've got full batches to produce. Um, distillery managers, which I used to be, you work, you can work very long hours. Um, you don't always, it's not every single week, but if things go wrong, um, you need to stick around, you know, you need to be there. You're the conduit between yes. all the different shift changes and people coming in, people coming out, making sure that all the information shared around. So you, you can end up working some extremely long hours and extremely long weeks. Um, and I've, I've been through that myself. Yeah. But yeah, every job that I think I've done or I know people do, it still is. <clears throat> it's just, there's just, there's a definite camaraderie. Um, it's really tough, but it's a great job to be in. And it is pretty cool sometimes when people ask you, what do you do for a living? And you say, oh, I work for, and you see a name that they're like, I know what that is. You know, yeah, I, yeah. There's, tangible. There's, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. yeah, there's no need yeah. to explain, you know, like I work for, and you, you just see a name, like a, a three-letter acronym, like lots of names become. And people will just be like, all right, right, and what do you do? And, but if you just say, I work for Glenmondry, you tend to be in a pub when you're meeting people and, you know, you're meeting people for the first time. And it, it's just, it's that, that kind of connection. It's easy to connect well with, um, with the whiskey industry when you work in it because people know what it is. Is there anything particularly unique about Glenmorangie's culture, whether it's, you know, do they have like a higher purpose or values or anything that, that people really get behind that, that, that kind of, like, you know, build that culture and that uh, give that people the sense of belonging perhaps. Is there anything unique about your company or is it, is it kind of just the nature of the whiskey industry, whether it's McAllen will have the same thing, Goodfiddich would have the same thing. Or do you think that your your company stands out a wee bit? Well, everyone would say theirs stands out, so I can't really I can't really talk about other people because yeah. I've never worked for Agenton and I've never You're worked. Lining for You're lining up your next job, Brendan. Here, you're lining up your next job. Yeah. So yeah, so unfortunately, I, I can't I can't speak to them. I, I mean, one of my best friends um, works for William Grant. You know, she runs. She runs quite a lot of their operation in the north of Scotland. We both yeah. work for Diageo, so we can both know. So Diageo is very big. Um, it's very structured and very organised. Um, has this unwavering commitment to quality, which I think sometimes is forgotten because people think, oh, big means no quality, which is madness. Um, but Diageo is completely whiskey-led, so like 50% of all Diageo's profits, I think, come from whiskey. So when you were whiskey, you were the centre of attention. <clears throat> And you got to make something amazing. But definitely it was driven by Johnny Walker, which is the biggest blend in the world. So you had to make some serious volumes of great quality, but serious volumes of whiskey. That was now, a funny one for me. Like Glenn, Johnny Walker, I, I lived in Singapore for a year when I was 20. And like, I saw Johnny Walker for the first time. You know, I never, probably never drunk much whiskey until then. But it was such a big brand definitely. abroad, right? Huge. And it's, it's in all the airports and all the bars. The Sheamus yeah. and Johnny Walker, the two brands that you're like, wow, I never even knew it'd been, it's from Scotland before I've seen it. You know, it's like huge. Yeah, that's what, I was, that's what I was saying earlier. You know, in, in Scotland, we all think oh, it's an old man's drink and it's just for men, but it's because yeah. Scottish people don't know that much about whiskey as a, as a general, but it's all 
abroad, the demand for it's abroad, so the marketing for it's abroad. Um, is it, is so it a feeling yeah. on the? Is it a feeling on our on our and whether it's the the whiskey sector in Scotland that it's like you just you know because we can get good returns by selling it abroad. You should do. A, is it silly in a way that we don't promote it more in Scotland, or or do you think it's just a cultural thing and we can't shift beer and tenants and stuff? I, I think. I think we still promote it here, but I think it's a personal choice, you know? Yeah. Uh, If people want to drink it, they can drink it, and if they don't, they don't, you know? Whereas the demand is in other parts of the world, you know? Whereas in Scotland, it's probably familiarity, you know? Just just over-familiar with it. I deviated a bit there. I was was intrigued by the culture question. I let you off the hook there too easily. (laughs) What did you get? Yeah, so I was was trying to explain a few places. So Diageo is like this bigger place that worked at. William Grant's is a family-owned business, so yeah. you know, my friend talks about like, lots of it is to do with the connection to the family, and I think their commitment is always to the long term would be something, but again, I'm a wee bit uncomfortable talking about people that I haven't worked for, but this is what I hear is William Grant's and Sons always think about what's, what's the long term, they're never making short-term strategic decisions, you know, or we better do this to save a bit of money, but they're, they're always like, no, 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 let's keep on a long-term vision. And again, yeah. that's great for whiskey, so it makes total sense. And basically, you know, pretty much everything they do is whiskey, so that makes sense. Um, at Glenmorangie, what I would say that surprised me, and I didn't realize until I joined, is you think of them as being part of Moat Hennessy, as part of Louis Vuitton Moat Hennessy. So you think of like big corporate companies. Mm. But actually, like LVMH, Moat Hennessy, they're almost like, they're like a whole series of small companies that come together and just report under one banner. So the Glenmontry Company is only 200 people. So like I know the name of every single person at the company. Yes, and I, I interact with every single person in the company every month. I think that'd be fair. I think every single month I'll see every member of the Glenmontry Company. And if that's not true, well, you'll never know. But let's just pretend it's true. How's Um, how's Gordon? I'll test this theory. How's Gordon? Remember, he's up in Tain. Yeah, Gordon. Is he the distillery manager, was he? Oh, Andy. Andy. Andy was the distillery manager. Is it Gordon Richardson? Yeah, Gary. Gary. um, Remember. And Jimmy. Jimmy. You're just making up Scottish names now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Jimmy and Gary were the operators. You That's were right. the process engineer, and Andy was the distillery manager. And then and Chaz, Chaz, was, there Chaz well. was there as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, it's yeah. brilliant, brilliant team. But everyone, it did seem closely knit, you know. And and like you say, the familiarity between everyone was was phenomenal. Yes. But I find it interesting. For me, you study big companies like uh, you'll be familiar with Enios. Yes, big employer. They they own Grangemouth, and obviously they took over from Team Sky and cycling team and stuff. And it's the same sort of strategy as they, they take a company or an asset or an organization on and they, they let it they leave it be in a way that they, they might change the model around, make it more efficient, make it leaner. But it's like, let that exist in itself. Let's not make it a 10,000 person company. Let it run as a 200 people or 800 people. And it's yeah. a good thing. Let's just make it a bit more efficient. And I guess it's a similar thing with, with that, right? It's very clever yeah. by, by LV. <clears throat> Yeah, it is. It is. And it's the other thing I'd say about culturally is this sort of commitment to innovation, I would say, is unlike most other whiskey companies. So, like, yes, you have to make the 
the new make spirit, the raw make spirit that's going to be going more in GNR big in the future. Yeah. But also, some of the time we want you to make something completely different. Some of the time we want you to just try stuff, like try stuff and fail if you want to fail because, and that's driven a bit by just being quite small, two distilleries, and we're only using these distilleries to make our products. You know, um, I think that has a huge part to play in uh, our culture, which is innovative, different, lots of one-off products, great launches, um, trying to be fun as well. Um, yeah. I think yeah. all of these things drive in, and it definitely does change. It's just the, the, the size of the company makes us, it's just your, your exposure to different things. So most of my role has been operations facing, so running distilleries, running maltings, uh, running sort of big production operations, day-to-day, week-to-week stuff. Yeah. But in this job, it's much more... Uh, informal, the structure is much less sort of defined and it's much more um, flatter, flatter, flatter. Yes, um, yeah. which always sounds better than structured and it's better in many ways but in other ways it's a bit weird as well sometimes, but you'll find yourself in a market meeting and I'm now in them all the time but at first that took a lot of getting used to because I kept thinking you know, why on earth am I here? I think it's the but, shirts yeah. Brendan, I think it's the shirts, you know if you go for plainer shirts then you won't <laughs> so I love cool. it Paisley Go I'll show you. I'll show you my other shirt. My other shirt's like wilder than this. It's the same make. <laughs> um, I got these. It was my birthday a couple of weeks ago, so I had the big, I had the big 4-0, 4-0 in isolation. So yeah. that's on a that's on a delay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the celebration for that is definitely on delay, but I'm going to go for it. <laughs> but that's class. But I, I'm fascinated by organisational culture. It's quite cool. I I like the. It seems like a winning formula, like this flat structure and, and empowering people, you know, and, and anyone can come with forward an idea. Is it that sort of culture? You know, if you have like a, a young graduate comes out of chemical engineering degree and they all of a sudden you spark off with a, in the marketing, marketing department and they can contribute something, they feel valued and it's, it's quite empowering for people, right? Yeah, so it does and it doesn't, just like every other company. There'll be some times there's decisions that are made by the exec and they just come down. And yeah. some people will be like, oh, I have a shack of influenced that or had a, a, a something to say on that. Um, but yeah, in the main, some of our meetings are very, very large. And when you first walk in, you would go, there's too many people at this meeting. There's just too yeah. many people. Yeah. Why are so many people here? But then you realize that there's certain meetings where the decisions get made. Yeah, yeah, certain meetings where decisions get made or discussions are had that at least, even if you're just in the room and you're not contributing, it can kind of make sense in people's heads and they go, ah, so that's why we didn't go with a, you know, a release with three bottles in it and instead we're going for six small bottles in a release or whatever it is, yes. um, which really works. Um, the, the main downside to the flat organisation is just sometimes people don't get invited to meetings that actually, you know, they'd be like, oh, for God's sake, I, I could have contributed to that, I could have known about that. Um, yeah. But you don't necessarily know, whereas if you have... If you have 100 distilleries, for example, and you're going to have a management meeting, then you know you're going to invite 100 distillery managers. Um, and then they all have teams and you'll make them all look similar. Yes. So it's much easier for the kind of what I'd call management infrastructure, you know, for the weekly meetings, the quarterly meetings, the, the six monthly meetings. Um, so sometimes you'll miss out in meetings or people will say, oh, I wish I was at that meeting, but I didn't know about it. So that's the downside. But the plus side is the amount of creativity 
the amount of options to contribute to certain things, the amount of walking by and just finding something going on that you're then invited to take part in. Um, all of that is great. And like you say, if we have um, some of our marketing team or some of our new product development team, um, if they are working on a certain project, if it's their project, they present. So they present at our gateway meetings. Yeah. So when they're at gateway, um, the gateway is chaired by the CEO. So they're seeing the CEO on a monthly basis. Wow, yeah. When I think back to my time with Diageo, which again, I, I loved my time at Diageo. And I was reasonably senior um, when I left. But to, to see the CEO of Diageo, I think I met the CEO twice in eight years because yeah. it's, it's a different size of organization. But I've met the CEO of Moat Hennessy. Uh, so my, the CEO of Glenmondia I meet all the time. Um, Tom, so that's how I, I've met Tom. I, I don't, I couldn't even count how many times I've met Tom now because it's frequent. Already, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you meet him all the time. That's why yeah. you meet him all the time. And he's he's in the same office. Yeah. Um, but even his boss, the CEO of Moat Hennessy, you know, he's came to Glenmondry often, and you meet him. So yeah, it's, it's it's definitely there's real advantages to a slightly smaller, more agile, flatter structured team. And how do you find like, uh, like digital transformation that's trendy right now and, and uh, organisations embracing technology, whether it's sort of communication or using uh, automation, AI, etc., all that sort of stuff? Do you think like the history, the, sorry, the, the sort of traditions within the whiskey sector, is it, do you see them embracing technology in these ways or, or is there anything, whether it's gathering data through social media on different trends or different markets, is there is there any sort of, innovation from a digital perspective that you see and, and you kind of you're aware of or kind of asking that again you're asking the wrong fella um but there, there will be there'll be quite a lot done there you weren't invited to that um, meeting brendan that's the answer what's that sorry <laughs> you weren't invited to that meeting yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank god as well that would definitely, <laughs> not be, my, definitely not be my specialty no no um, there's, there's, there's loads of yeah. i've seen quite i've seen quite cool ai you know with um Sorry, not AI, um, uh, augmented reality. So I've seen some quite cool augmented reality things in the industry where you, you scan a picture of Ardbeg distillery and it pops up with a 3D image or you scan a picture of a wine bottle as a competitor and the face on the wine bottle comes to life and starts talking to you. You know, I've seen stuff like that. Um, there, there's loads of things about trying to understand what people are drinking, getting information that goes on. Um, but all of that stuff's outside of my, my remit. What, what I'm more interested in, technology, digital, um, and it's happening during this COVID crisis, is much more realizing there's much more we can do over Zoom. There's much more we can do over technology that allows us to bring to life our whiskies to our um, sales force all around the world, but also to consumers. You know, I've done so many tastings where it used to be I would go to countries and I still see that happening in the future, but not for every single thing. I can see us going to do certain tastings where it just works. So I've even done, you call them tastings, but I've even done just Q&A sessions talking about whiskey on Instagram. So you just go on Instagram Live and pick a word, a single word in whiskey that people think they know, and you talk about what it is and what it isn't. And the interaction we're getting off it is enormous. It's huge, and people are, asking when is it happening this week is it happening next week and you realize that not everything has to be i'm going to exaggerate a bit here but not everything has to be pressed white tablecloths you know and perfectly tied knotted half windsor um 
no uh, ties with your best suit on and standing up with the glass and doing it and talking people through every single whiskey they're going to drink. Sometimes that has to happen. And sometimes it's definitely where you get the best interaction and the best connection with your team, uh, with, with, your, with the people you're doing it with. But a lot of times we're finding this technology is working fantastically for certain events that, and for certain ways just to get the information to people that they want to know about this new whiskey that's landed at their local liquor store or wine store or whatever. Uh, you've got on your mute. So are you are you are you, uh, are you familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk in the states, like this yes. big American social media guy? And he he sort of it was very much that that he took he took wine and sort of decoded it into simple terms and made it appeal to the mass markets. He took like his old man's grocery store, I think it was, and he started selling wines through I guess social selling using different social media platforms in order to basically talk about it sell and in, give insights out to people as you do yeah. that's i guess your job is you you're an ambassador for whiskey and you you educate people that's what you are you're you're a teacher you're teaching people about whiskey <laughs> and then and then it's not i'm just gripped and it's like i, I buy into it. i love finding out more about it and then I'm, I'm more educated i'm more informed and i tell other people about it and I, you build that brand loyalty through that sort of um through just the association with brendan you know I pick up a bottle of glenn morangi now and I think of you yeah, uh, yeah, it can it can happen. Or my boss, definitely my boss. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. But yeah, it's it's just like whiskey is really complicated, and it's it's not on purpose that it's really complicated, but it is really complicated. Just the history of it. Just what does each word mean? I mean, so everyone knows that a single malt scotch is like the best, and that's like a generic term. But people say, oh yeah, the single malt. Get the single malt if you were. If you want to bluff your way through a whiskey tasting, oh, I'll have a single malt. Because you just know that from all the experience, different films, different things you've seen, that that's up the top. But then you ask people, why is it called single malt? And a lot of people have no idea. They have no idea. And it's, it's because, you know, historically that made sense because it's made from 100% malted barley. Yes. And it's made at a single distillery. Yes. But a lot of people don't get that because... It's moved on from the literal description to now single malt is just like the name that you say. Yeah. So even just trying to bring to life people why it's called a single malt is complicated and it takes a lot of explaining. And then after that, there's so many like fantastic single malts and there's so many regions that it's made in. There's so many styles. You could, you could actually say they all taste unique, um, but there's certain groupings that you can put in. And it's just when you start going down into these different layers, it gets harder and harder and harder. But people do it, you know, because the stuff tastes amazing. So yeah. they'll try it and they'll get into it and they'll go, God, this one's amazing. Oh, I don't like that one at all. This is so different. But then it's just like people become like, like greedy for information. They become greedy for facts, greedy for stories. They really want to learn everything they can. So that's there's why... There's that's parallels why there with wine as well, right? There's parallels oh, there yeah, with yeah, wine yeah. and there's so Absolutely. much to it. Yeah, it's good. Absolutely. Just yeah. And that's why a big part of my, it's a small part of my job in terms of how long I do it for, but an important part of my job, it's about 10% of my time, is that I get to go and travel and travel around the world and, and tell people, probably 15% of my time, and tell people about whiskey and really just bring it to life. So I do see that coming back, and it is really cool to meet people in person and hear their stories about how they got into whiskey or why they love this particular whis whiskey. But the technology, the, the advanced assay is 
there's way more times you can just sit down with people online and everyone's kind of figured out how to go on mute when they need to and what gallery view and what speaker view is. So after a couple of very painful ones, um, I've managed to I've managed to get this thing where we've got like a bit of a routine going and you can feel some real positive change for the industry coming. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm in a similar sort of game to you in that I, I like to travel and I've had so many good experiences in life from traveling. And then it's it comes more and more ingrained into you and it's, it's you know, I've been in oil and gas industry for a good chunk of my career and I'm changing now just because I've hit another recession there in some ways. But you're like, you'd love, I love to travel and it's like it's such a great thing to do in life to understand a bit more cultures, to empathize with people from different backgrounds, etc. But the reality is there's going to be a less of it, right? And it's, you know, sustainability, it's uh, uh, carbon, uh, sorry, net, net zero, it's, it's, you know, energy transition. And there is, I believe there's going to be less planes in the sky and it's, it's tough in a way because you, you like the idea of traveling and seeing the world, but maybe it's never going to be back to where it was previously and uh, we're on a yeah. plane every month. Or... I think there's a, so far I've never been on a plane every month at least. Um, it's probably like four or five big trips a year that I would do. Uh-huh. But I don't know. I don't know. In the short term, there's not going to be as many planes in the sky. In the medium term, possibly. But I think it'll take, I'll be more confident at predicting it in like a year's time from now or something like that. Yes. You know, I mean, it just takes one step change in technology or something like that and, and things could come back. But, but I don't know. But definitely what I'm seeing is, you know, um, the benefit of what we are doing right now uh, and how that can happen. But I mean, don't forget, it's, there, there's, there's huge stuff going on right now with the amount of um, carbon being produced by um, tech firms, you know? Yes. So moving from airports, uh, moving away from air travel completely and moving everything to to Zoom, it'll take a, a cleverer person than, than me and someone who works in that kind of industry to then say, does that have a, a, a carbon shift or does it exactly. not, you know? Exactly. It's like attention changes from one thing to the next to the next. And even um, even during lockdown, you've seen like the amount of traffic that was coming, videos, you know, and, and TikToks risen massively and and I don't know how much data has been transmitted. There must be stats on it, but, you know, like multiples, it could be 10 or 20 times yeah. as much data because right. of this situation. And it's it comes with carbon costs. I think there's even a wee, you can Google it, but it's maybe an email's got so many grams of carbon associated with it. And it's quite significant, you know, so all that data yeah. has to be stored somewhere that takes energy to do it. And Servers, servers yeah. use up a lot of energy, yeah. yeah. And... Um, Quite a few of the, the big tech companies, I'll not name names, but their annual reports came out and their carbon footprint has gone up 20%, 25%. Yeah. You know, they're still committed to reducing it. Everyone is, but it's, it's going up. So, so I, don't, I don't know about travel. I, I can see it. If I was to try and make a prediction, I think I will still travel, but gone <laughs> will be the days of, right, you're heading out to America and we're still working out what you're going to be doing but by the time you get there, you know, we've definitely got these three events lined up, but that's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We'll work out what you're doing the Tuesday and the Thursday, and then we'll have you for the weekend, and then you'll go here. Um, I can see that, which is kind of like the more ad hoc or at the last minute, or people saying, you know, it really would be great if they were here in person. It would just make the event so much better. Yeah. I can see it becoming a much more justified you know, yes. you want 90% of the hours that they're there filled with high quality things. Otherwise, let's do it 
as like a, a, a big event over uh, telecommunication, over Zoom or whatever. And there's no getting away from the human interaction. Like you've seen even that lockdown restrictions being released slightly. How much of a buzz is it to meet one of your mates in person for the first time in a few months? Exactly. Yeah. What is it? Um, people are primal. Yeah. People are primal. And I, yeah. I think this has worked so well. Uh, I think this chat, well, maybe this chat isn't going well, but it feels like this chat's going well. Um, and I do not believe this chat would go as well if we didn't know each other. I just don't yeah. think that would be the case. I think there's there's so many subconscious, so many um, primeval things in your head that would be going off if you weren't speaking to someone that you had a relationship with, someone that you knew. And yeah. I worry, because I'm hearing some people, not our company, fortunately, but I'm hearing some companies saying, that's it, we're just all going to sell our headquarters. We don't need office space anymore. And I'm like, I really don't believe that. I think you need ways to collaborate. You need yeah. opportunities to interact, and especially creativity. I think well, and that's a huge part yeah. of my job. As you, my, my team is called the Whiskey Creation Team. You know, yes. yeah. so we have to be creative. And I just can't see us having it, the same creative buzz if we're all joining this meeting in amongst 10 other meetings that suit the, the format, you know? Yeah, and like I'm, I'm kind of getting involved in virtual consultancies and experimenting with facilitating meetings remotely, and 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 there is a, a you know there is a need for it and a want for it within the market. But at the same time, I believe in this sort of hybrid model. You heard of WeWork, like we have these communal office spaces that you can just go along, and pay ten pounds for the day. It's got a cool yeah. coffee shop. It's got cool breakout areas. It's also really collaborative. So you you get other companies that are there. And you see it with tech incubators that you might have, um, you know, 10 companies lease this office and they can sort of mingle and, and share resources and stuff. And so there's like, like WeWork's just one company that do it. But I do, I do see like offices being repurposed, you know, and, and, and oh, yeah. big companies that have 5,000 desks in London, you know, we only need 20% of those desks now. Work from home most of the time, come in one day a week, that sort of thing. And, and but yeah, there's, there's always going to need to see people in person and, and it just it's just good, isn't it? You don't get the you miss the small talk, you miss the just just the the sort of the informal moments, but there's ways around it, but and I see this technology even developing even further, but you'd miss it, right? And staring at a screen is just all day is painful. It's it's horrible. I, I think it's <clears throat> um so I totally agree with the the sort of we work model. Um <clears throat> so maybe we need to think of a better company after the the yeah. IPO that they had and the dodgy CEO. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that sort of we work model I can see working definitely less desks. Um, gone are the days of having a permanent desk, so more odd desks. <laughs> probably more of a just come in on the days that there's a reason for you to be in. A bit like what I was saying about that airplane travel really having yeah. justified yeah. it. But also, why are you coming in today? Are you coming in today because you have meetings that have required a face to face meeting? Or are you coming in just to go on a whole load of Zooms? And guess what? If you're coming in to go on a whole load of Zooms, do it from home. Don't yeah, come here. Yeah, um, yeah. I can see that developing and definitely I think it's needed. I think it is this kind of just social interaction. Um, so you build good relationships. It's how you, you fix broken relationships. It's how you stop relationships going in a bad way. All these things are all happening together. Um, and I, again, I keep going back to it, but I think what, creatively creative meetings and stuff like that are going to require people in but the positive side of all of this is i think presenteeism is now dead for good yes you know 
And it really wasn't, it really, really was. I said so many horror stories, even in January, of people saying, ah, well, I still need to come in. Or they're going to do working from home. Okay, everyone can work from home on a Friday afternoon. That was one of the policies that I heard from a, a mate. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, surely you work from home when it makes sense. But yes, I think presenteeism is dead as a result. Yeah, have you heard of this book, uh, Corporate Rebels? I talk about it quite a lot. No, I haven't. I have to send you a copy, and it's it's essentially that. It's about how you know you move from command and control structures, yep. and it's about uh, autonomy and, and trust, and, and really just to get the best out of Brendan, it's just tell you, I bloody trust you, you know? I believe in you, you know, as yeah. opposed to... That's a mistake, done. but I appreciate it, but it's a mistake. <laughs> it was a lie, yeah, it was a lie, not a mistake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but... Um, that sort of mentality is just you you get your best out of people by treating them like adults as opposed to what you done today, Brendan? What have you done today? Yeah. And not every day is gonna be a good day in the office or in, in life. And your your whether it's your moods or your creative thoughts, they're not always there. Uh, yeah. your energy is not always there. But other days, bloody hell, you're on it and you produce the best work you've ever produced. And it's like it's like it's uh, looking at people as uh, as um based on their output, judging them on their output over a long period of time as opposed to on a weekly basis how many hours you sat in that seat that's it yeah yeah, yeah. just me- that, you're not measuring it by measuring hours in the office are you you're just yeah you're, you're not exactly. measuring productivity by hours in the office and there's a really interesting like some of the clients um that i've done business with in the past it was very much like you can't work from home you've got to work in this office and as we want to see you there's whole layers of management they're there to observe people I, and it's like and it's like okay we've got to work from home Everyone's scrabbling around with desktops under their arm trying to get home. And it's like the whole organization is just rocked by this. And it's like all these people yeah. that are there to micromanage people. It's like, what are you guys up to? The phone them up every day. What, what are you doing today? It's like, what do you mean I'm bloody doing today? What are you doing today? You know, you're just phoning around asking people what they're doing. And it's just like, um, it's really interesting. It's, I find it quite interesting and just how you, get, how, you, how you get the best out of people and how you ensure that they're having fun and want to be at the organization and are not there just to party and live for the weekend type thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's cool. You're listening to Mostly Talk. If you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a review? Thanks for listening. Now, back to it. Yeah, my two, my two non-alcoholic or non-alcoholic favourite beers are, this one's called Little Rebel. It's like tropical. Rebel. It's not too bad. It's just like a nice sort of tropical taste. And this one, I'm promoting this one a lot, Brewdog Alcohol Free. It's class. It actually tastes like a kind of like a punk. But some of them are dreadful, like the... I won't mention names. Some are just very sweet and and uh, are too gassy and they're not not so great. But yeah, how's uh, how's Jamie been during lockdown? I've got a two and a four year old and I've seen some weird behaviours going on. Is it? It's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> so Jamie's been great. So um, what's the main main things I've seen have been really good things. These sleep patterns went all over the place, and I mean that was a big thing because the first two years of his life, you know. Obviously, it was the most magical two years of my life because I've got to say that. It was hell. It was absolute hell. Like, what, what have I done? Why have I done this? I know what I've done, but why have I done this? Just never a sleeper or what? Never. Yeah, I'm the, same. I'm the same. Sleep for an hour. Yeah. Wake up for an hour. Sleep for an hour. Wake up for an hour. And nothing wrong, like no colic or anything like that? Just, just... No, that colic, I think, is a conspiracy theory for people. <laughs> you know, just, just murder sleepers. <laughs> um, what was wrong? Probably me. Uh, probably me and my wife did it wrong or something. I don't know. And you know, I, gave my attention when we shouldn't have, or didn't get this or didn't. Have it. 
Who knows? Who knows? And All I know is two years of his life were hell, just struggling to survive, trying to stay awake. You're so um, comfy with each other as well. Like I had four years. I'm like I've got a four year old now, so it's like four years of just you. You get fraught with it. You you're sleep deprived yourself, and sometimes you have to watch it. Right? You're just like I. The real pressure on relationship. You see why relationships go south in the first like six months yeah. after having a kid. But we've been so lucky. Like I say, some... anyone out there planning for a kid, it's a magical thing. It's, it's yeah, the best really. thing ever. Yeah. Because you've but got to see that. You've in got terms to of uh, in terms of net zero, we should actually say it's the worst thing ever. Don't have any more kids. <laughs> That's probably the most efficient <laughs> <laughs> thing. Yeah. So after t- after two years, so he's three now. He's three and a half. But after two years, we kind of cracked the sleeping, and it was like legendary. So. His sleeping routine going out during this, people would probably think, well, what does that matter? Who cares? So for us, you were like, oh my God, where is this going to go? So we're a bit worried about that. Yeah. But why was know. that? Is it just nursery? Or you had routines of going out and doing stuff and he, he stopped or why? I think it's all of our routines are so up in the air. And, yeah. you know, yeah. he's seeing people in the house in the morning and then he's starting to realise I'm not leaving for work because I'd be at the house at 6.30 um, to get the train to Edinburgh. I'm not doing that now, so I'm here. Yeah. I don't know, there's, there's different noises in the house, there's different temperatures in it. Who knows? Who knows? But, well, is he quite, is he quite, he goes to nursery three or four days a week or to four? Well, not anymore, but he used to go three times. Four, yeah. Yeah, he used to go four. three times. Uh, my wife works three days a week, so he'd go to the nursery for the three days and now yeah. not that. And so we're, we're just kind of tag teaming it. So my wife needs to go to work. She has to get into an office for her work, but it's just okay. her in the office. Um, and she a key, so that can be a bit what's, her, what's her role, sorry? Is she? Oh, she's, a, she's a lawyer. She's a okay, lawyer, great. but there's still some cases to be done and all the files are in the office. Yeah. So she's the only person in the office at the moment. Um, but yeah, all that happened. But the other thing is, like, just he's loving it, to be honest. He's absolutely loving life. Um, it's got even easier now that um, kids can play together because he has friends that are two doors down. Ah, That'd nice. be tough. <laughs> you wouldn't understand why we wouldn't let him out. Um, but yeah, he's, he started playing football, which is brilliant. I'm all over that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got a so set of goals. I got a set of goals. Got a set of goals. Bought a couple of, whenever there's a football in the supermarket, you know, if there's any size, just buy it. Just buy anything that you can kick. <laughs> um, so it's great. So we go out and play football every night and we run up and down the drive. Um, last year, without knowing this, last year we had a garden that was designed for adults, you know, so it was like patios and, yeah, no, yeah. Not, it's quite small but all concrete all slab so you could you know just have parties on it and stuff and I made the decision to dig it all out so it nearly killed me but I got it all dug out and turfed it so we put grass down and thank god we did that because like, mm. that's been the the lifesaver so we now put a padlock in the gate and you can effectively just throw them out the back garden with a dog so we have a dog so you throw the dog out in the grass and then you throw him out in the grass and just shut the door and they're kind of enclosed in this mm sunny grassy um, I think Ben you're, you're, you're either a visionary or you, you got advanced warning of this when you're on over when you're in foreign jaunts yeah <laughs> oh, it was just potluck potluck <laughs> and have you done yeah, that right there right there I've got I bought my trampoline as well so he loves his trampoline and yeah. he goes nuts on it for hours and we love his trampoline because he doesn't realise that it's actually a prison you know <laughs> yeah locked him in it <laughs> just keep going. Yeah, you're doing great. You're doing amazing. Keep going. Then you go back in and just have a sleep or something. He just bounces yeah. away. We fell into the trap of because we were both working and we were two boys and uh, Disney Plus, we subscribed to that. <laughs> and it's like, it's not like when we were younger, you know, you watch cartoons from 6 p.m. until 7 p.m. and that's it. That was it. It's just like, 
watch whatever you want 24 hours a day on repeat and and your tantrums the works when it goes off it's been tough yeah. sometimes but you just gotta be disciplined to get routine and getting out of the house and doing stuff right it's tough yeah yeah definitely do that having a yeah. dog's great for it the dog's actually the one that we've been worried about the most i think he had like you know a real downer about it all because he just couldn't understand why we were all still in the house every day constantly you know yeah. so the dog was like he was he was all over the shop for a bit but He's better now. But yeah, we get as a family, go for walks, go here, go there. And was the it's dog always, the dog was a good excuse from day one, I can get out of the house and sort of go further than I normally go because of the dog. That's right, that's true. Yeah. I tell you, you saw to, this coming, Brendan, you saw this coming, yeah. Everyone, everyone was looking, everyone was looking <laughs> to borrow our dog so they could go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. But we had it good in that sense, like some countries you weren't even allowed to, you know, push a pram up the road. You had to like, mm. you know, 50 metres or something from your house and... Yeah, you had to get like a permission slip to get out in Paris. You had to get like yeah. a, a piece of paper and you could go out once a week or somewhere. It was, it was yeah. mental. Yeah. It's crazy times. It's like crazy times that we're living in. Yeah, weird. And then and then people use the you know term unprecedented, but it's happened in, in Asia right before and you see people like the culture they're, they're used to wearing masks, whereas for us it's such an alien thing and people you know the and even that I find fascinating is you've probably been to Japan quite a few times, have you? You're I've not actually no, I've never been in Japan. But the, the the culture there is they wear the masks in uh, in airports and out in public when they have the cold, and yeah. because they don't want to give it to anyone else. Right, same and in it, China and Taiwan and stuff like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it's that sort of you know community spirited, not giving your bugs to other people. Whereas here, people are wearing the masks, and it's very much I'm trying to protect myself from from getting it. <laughs> and it's yeah. it's not what it's really about, you know. And and uh, and and even the way that they've managed to control it in other parts of the world it's probably because culturally you know they've seen it all before and they're used to wearing masks and sort of and being more hygienic because of it well south korea had a dry run at it well they had um sars in a very unpleasant way and that that was not as infectious but way more deadly i think is the stats on it so yeah they had they'd had a don't say a test run they'd had their own crisis but because of that They'd went through all their plans and they were able to activate them way quicker. So that that seems to have been like maybe best practice that in New Zealand. I suppose yeah. New Zealand helps to be a, a small island, you know. But even then, like where do they go from there? You know, are you going to get to New Zealand to do a, you know to promote a product? You know, you're 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 being question, yeah. tested and stuff. So it's yeah, it's not it's not easy for anyone. And I think I'm hearing from people in Singapore is that they were really on it and good at controlling it using technology, etc. But even now, it's like right. We're still in this deadlock where we need to open up the country, get the economy going. How are we going to do that? You know, we have to change the narrative a bit and, and play down the fact that it's such a, a health risk and get people doing getting um, flying basically to China and Taiwan and neighboring countries yeah. because it, it's so dependent on it from a from an economic and trade. Point yeah. Of view. yeah, trade and yeah. tourism and stuff. Yeah. And and also just for like people's social development. You know, I do worry about my son. I do worry about my son's peers and I worry about my friends' kids. Yeah. Um, it's just there's so many things that, that happen when you go to a nursery and you interact with people that aren't your two parents. So he's getting yeah. loads of nurturing off the two of us. Well, he's getting nurturing off his mum, you know, and I'm a <laughs> yeah. pain in the ass. He gets the odd game of football off of me and like a, a, a bit of toast. But, <laughs> um, but there's so much that... There's these drivers, you know, if your drivers, there's five human drivers and you form two and these are how you interact with different people. You know, there's a huge amount of um, psychological study on it. 
um, transactional theory, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, and these things develop by the time that you're five years old. Yes. You know, yeah. so if you spend an entire, let's say it's been six months, let's pretend it's been six months, if you spend six months in lockdown, you know, that's, that's one-tenth of this time for you to develop the Huge. things that are going to make you who you are for the rest of your life. And so even, even, uh, even when we go for a walk in the park right now, so my son now gets it. So when strangers are coming the other way, he gets right into the side and doesn't look at them. Yes. And you know, yes. that's good for not getting COVID. So that's, that's the priority right now. But what's that gonna what's that gonna do to him, you know, in the long term? What's that gonna do to every kid in the long term? Are we gonna be are we gonna be less social? Are we gonna change how we interact? I, I don't know. It, it really It's scary, it does it does worry me. It does yeah. worry me. And it's it's such a human thing to do to even give someone a hug or a handshake or you know, to bond with someone and it's like that's yeah. the fibers of society have just been sort of shifted a wee bit. But yeah. I uh, I see it like um like my boys, their behaviour and, and even they build up their confidence at nursery and they were, you know, it was really hard at first for them. But once they get into it, you know, they, they enjoyed going. It was fun and it was, you, you couldn't get them, get them out of the car quick enough. They were, you know, they really liked it. And now they, there is, like, you go to a new park and it's like, oh, I don't want to be here, daddy. It's, you know, I'm, I'm scared. And it's like, you know, wow. Like, yeah, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's disappointing. It's, it's concerning, but it's not surprising, you know. You're like, God, yeah. no, no wonder you are. Like, we haven't been out in forever. And, and then the other one I'm wondering about is just, just, just now your traditional immunity, you know, getting immune to all these bugs and viruses that are about long before COVID. Yes. Are people going to, are people getting, you know, getting a bug, you know, getting measles, getting this, getting that. That's not really been happening because uh, no one's interacting, you know. Yes. I think yeah. the best part, people are following the rules. So I get why it's happened, but I don't know if I agree with it completely that just shutting down is the right way to go. You know, if you're going to shut down, either shut down completely uh, or or do it in a more managed way of opening back up. Because it's, it's not just about getting economies restarted, like there is... There's like social stuff that really, you know, makes me worried. Yeah, and the consequences we probably haven't seen yet. But even I can imagine being a, a nursery, you know, teacher or key worker or whatever, you know, when it returns back, it's going to be pandemonium, right? You know, even if your yeah. kid's fine with it, they'll be, you know, for the year of five, will be like really struggling. It'll be, a, it'll be very difficult to manage the whole sort of return and getting yeah. it back confident and happy. But, but yeah. Yeah, that's why we uh, got into engineering and uh, consultancy work, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, keeping it nice and cheery, you know, we, we, we better lift it a bit, we better lift it. We're, <laughs> yeah. We both sound, like sound very stoic and sensible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you uh, are you looking forward to, was family holidays and stuff this year, though? Did you did you book anything up, Scottish breaks or things? No, so not yet. We'll work it out, but I had uh-huh. quite a few, um, so I was 40 a week ago. So I had quite a few celebrations lined never up for said, that. That's, that's twice you've mentioned now, Brendan. Uh, you wanted a card uh, or something, um, don't you? Quite <laughs> a few. <laughs> definitely not. The, the, the birthday's cancelled. But yeah, I had a couple of trips away planned for that, uh, which have been cancelled, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of a bummer. But I don't know. I don't know if I'm so fussed about going away somewhere in Scotland till, till I've figured out what's, what's available and what isn't. I think I'll wait and see as, as the phases open up. Yeah. But again, you know, just when they've now said, well, you can have someone in your house now rather than your garden and kids can interact and whatever that is. So I'll see what the next stage is. Hmm. And probably we'll just 
just make more of going and seeing friends at weekends, you know, and nice, yeah. properly committing to, instead yeah. of, aye, we need to get together soon, and you both go, aye, we do, but you do nothing about it. Yeah, we yeah. actually physically planning, right, this Saturday we're going to go and see them. This Sunday we'll just stay home and have someone come out. This day we'll do this. This day we'll do this. I think that's probably the way we're going to play it. And the holidays, I can see me taking my holidays from work just to have more time in the house where I can just fully commit to, you know, watching the wee boy or going away and doing you some just, stuff. You or... just bloody love lockdown, don't you? You're not leaving that house. <laughs> <laughs> follow the rules. Follow the rules. If everyone would follow the bloody rules. <laughs> and what's your, do you have any like, reflections on lockdown, the things you learned about yourself or your marriage or your like being a dad or anything like that that you it's like a um, groundbreaking I, epiphany? Uh, I've realised how much I like being a dad. I've definitely yeah. realised that. I've realised just how enjoyable it is. And you learn so much about yourself as well, right? Because you're seeing like a mini me, and effectively, yeah. and the emotions yeah. you you had when you were that age, and the frustrations, I, and yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. I've also seen, um, I've seen how much more work I can get done um, in less time, almost if you like. Because I'm not commuting and I haven't got a long commute. The bosses are going to be watching this, Brendan, right? <laughs> I think they agree. I think they agree. I think, I think most bosses would agree with this, actually. And this is yeah. why presenteeism is probably dead. But, you know, instead of getting up at half six in the morning to try and catch a seven o'clock train that took an hour to get me in, so starting work at the back at eight and then working through until uh, half past five and then getting a train, which then got me home for about seven. So I'd get to see my son for five minutes before he was in his bath and in his bed you know might even get me give me his bath but i've now realized that there's so much more that can be done you know by being at my desk at eight o'clock which means getting up you know well five minutes before that i can be having a coffee and then as soon as i'm finished i'm, I'm, I'm there are you so, quite disciplined about like you know you do your eight hours a day or you tend to you have stuff going no, on long days and stuff here it's, it's all over the place but, but yeah. it's, it's great again bill so my boss is very he, he's been like this since before um, COVID. He's very relaxed about hours worked. And he's just like, if you're doing the work, you're doing the work. Now, it can be, it can be very... That, that comes as like a, a two-headed um, sword, or whatever the phrase is, a two-sided sword. Um, he will reach out to me late at night and stuff like that and say, hey, at some point, could you think about this? <laughs> but there's definitely what the... The balance of that of he says if you've got a quiet afternoon just just take it off if you've got yes, if you worked yes. in the weekend or if you were traveling which I do um, and you did like a weekend of traveling take it off go away um, so that works so I've always had that that kind of flexibility so here if I know I'm working at night like I'm tonight or if I know I'm working I've got working Wednesday very late at night doing a like a tasting with people. I'll just take the middle of the day off, you know, if I, if I don't American have meetings. Market, American market again, or what's yeah. that? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, doing, doing like a, a, a broadcast with a, an American um, podcast kind of thing, whiskey cast, it's called. Oh, cool. So, yeah, yeah it's, just, it's just easy. So I don't, do a, I don't do a rigid eight hours, but certain days I'll have 10 hours of work, 10 hours of meetings. Other days I'll have things at night. So I'll try, I tend to try and get up in the morning and do everything that I'm going to do in the morning and then take like a longer lunch. Yeah, and that's nice. where, you know, I eat. But then I take the wee boy outside, I get him in the garden, you know, try and get him off a screen. And then I work out with my wife to then switch over and do stuff. So it all works. But learnings, the learnings for COVID definitely have been, um, you know, the, the, how good family time is and really appreciating how good it is. 
Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I've learned is you don't need to wait until some of my mates live all around the world, but you don't need to wait until we're all back. Cause most of them are teachers, so we mm. tend to do all our socialising uh, in July. Yeah. And then at Christmas time. So mm. we meet best mates and we meet twice a year. But now we've realised from this, like we've been meeting up, we've been getting together to play poker, or we've been getting together to do... Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, they don't, they don't drink whiskey so much. So I know quite a bit about wine, which happens through the job, and also I just I like it. So I've been doing wine tastings like, with my face. It's, <laughs> are, it's ridiculous. But it's are these lads, are, lads from Cope Bridge that have went abroad and taught English, or are they? These are uni boys. These are uni okay. boys. They're mostly from Greenock and Port Glasgow and places like that. Oh, cool. And then, then there's one of them, one of them's posh, he's from Inshinnan. So we've got one posh <laughs> boy there as well. Um, but I, that's another thing I've realised, like, you don't need to wait until you're all in one place together to socialise. You can actually get together with people in different ways. Yeah, I think yeah. before COVID, that would have been weird. Maybe you could phone someone, but suggesting this, people would be like, I don't fancy that, that's just weird. I, but I now we've realised that's huge. I've got one of my, a really good friend in, uh, he lives in London and one that lives in Norway and we studied together in Singapore. And uh, I think I suggested maybe two years ago, why don't you all get a bottle of wine and sit and, and get on Skype and have a laugh, got the Skype thing at work. And it's just like, James, that's weird, right? That's fucking weird. <laughs> and now, and yeah. now everyone's doing it, right? I, uh, I, you're a visionary. Again, a visionary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. everyone was going nuts for it at the start, right? And it just got you just got fatigued. It's like, no, not another one. I've just been staring at the screen all day. I can't be arsed doing another uh, Friday night. We are still going strong. We are, we are uh, still going strong, but it's, it's the variety that helps. So it's different groups of people on or playing poker. Yeah. It's like none of these are huge poker players, you know, but, but it's a thing that you can do. Yeah, yeah. The quizzes, the quizzes are kind of gone now because everyone was doing quizzes. But I, there's, there's been loads of different ways to just do things that I think will stay even if tomorrow um, a vaccine gets invented and that happens I do still think there'll be times where someone will say right we haven't all seen each other in like two months let's yeah, go yeah. on and do something yeah. and no one will go oh let's just wait till we're all together it, it, it'll be a different way of thinking it's far more fun to me it's far more fun than watching Netflix or just some nonsense on the telly you know to hang out with like three of your best mates and have a laugh it's, it's class Aye, totally totally just when there's like some sort of sporting event on just you can watch that and chat to people while you're watching it and doing all that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff as well. Yeah. One of my yeah. favourite quiz stories is uh, I've got a friend, uh, John, and his wife, Anne, and they uh, hosted a quiz, I think it was the weekend past. And it was like they went to the supermarket and got a hold of random shopping items and did a, right. a recording of all the shopping items going along the, the conveyor belt. Mm. And it's the, the quiz show game. Uh, what is Generation it? game. Generation game. Generation game. Cut the toy. Cut the toy. Yeah, and they, they had all that going on, and it was like they sat there in the supermarket filming it all, and they're too embarrassed, and they just have to buy the stuff. So they've got all these random <laughs> things. <laughs> That's fun. brilliant. That's yeah. absolute genius. <laughs> yeah. So you have to bring back the quiz. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing a quiz for the works. I'm going to do that for our works quiz. I've done one, and they're asking me to do a second one. So any other suggestions like that, I'm all ears. Yeah, I'll, I'll get you a whole. Uh, I'll get you a whole script. There's loads of them like that, but you have to get someone to load it up, obviously. But it's uh, yeah. good fun, yeah. And <laughs> uh, you'd be keeping up with the exercise and stuff. Obviously, playing football, the wee man, and of you. Aye, so exercise has been a funny one. So I've always been into cardio, so uh, running. So I was training for a marathon, uh, the Edinburgh Marathon that was going to be in 
me. See, they're poor me. Me. It was going to be a me. So it got cancelled or postponed. You're in decent shape then, because that was, that was what, a month after lockdown or so to you. It'd be like a month and a half, yes. Yeah. So I was running about 16, 17 miles at that point, and oh, I've, wow. got a, I've got a walk bike, so like quite a fancy yeah, yeah. training bike, yeah. and they're amazing. Like I'm a huge fan of that. So I would do walk bike in the garage, um, and there was another bit of visionary. I put some gym equipment and an exercise bike in my garage when we had the wee boy, when we had Jamie. Because hey, someone's had a quiet word with you. Someone's had a quiet amazing, word. Amazing. Amazing. So couldn't get to the gym because they're having a wee boy. And now with that gym, you're like, thank God it's there. Thank God. But weirdly, I've stopped doing so much cardio. So I went for a run today and I ran five kilometers, which usually I'd be doing way longer. But, you know, I did five kilometers and it's quite slow, but I was feeling it. I've been doing way more of these kind of viral challenges. So I'm doing, I did 25 by 25. So that's 25 push-ups a day. The mental health days. one. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So to raise awareness for mental health, I was nominated by my friend. So it's quite a personal thing to him and Anthony. Um, so I did that. Then that same friend's got me doing a pull-up challenge. Yeah. So at the start of isolation, I couldn't do, I could do one pull-up, one half-decent pull-up. And you and still call him a friend, it. or you use the term loosely now? <laughs> it's really, it's really quite addictive. You get it? I've been buying like I bought a weighted vest. To, like, what are you on now? How many can you do now? You can do nine, nine pull-ups. Are you off a door frame thing, or what do you I've do? Got one in the garage. So I've just got one drilled into the wall in the garage. So ah, nine all the way down and all the way up. That's um, good. Yeah, yeah. From yeah. doing one, just no bad. And then I don't know if you've seen this. You ever seen the Bring Sally Up challenge? No, so I don't think I have. It's a song by Moby called Flower, and I won't sing it, so I'm a terrible singer, but, but the lyrics are, bring Sally up. So when they say that, you, you, we do it on push-ups, you push up, yeah. and they say, bring Sally down, and then when you go down, there's a bit of, like, there's two lines, you've got to hold yourself down, and then they say, bring Sally up, bring Sally down, and it goes on for three minutes or something like that. So the, wow. camp, the, the plan is, before isolation ends, I've got to complete that push-up challenge, and there's me and the uni mates I was talking about, we're all doing it at the moment. That'll uh, keep you so, fit, right? Yeah. Aye, aye, they're all great. So you do all of these ones and oh, you could do more, but it, that's quite fun. But, it, but definitely I've been more focused on that. So cardio-wise, I'm less fit than I was, but I can still run a, I can still do a 10K, you know. Yeah. With, and you're, with, are you one of these people that struggles like with your moods if you don't do your exercise? Are you, are you a grumpy bugger? I... Uh, it depends who you ask, I suppose. Um, I definitely need to burn off energy. Like, yeah. Definitely need to burn off energy. So I don't know. As long as I've got something to do, I've got quite an addictive personality as well. So if I if I get the idea of doing something, it becomes like my main focus. So when I had the marathon to run, but it's been postponed indefinitely, <clears throat> and then this push-up challenge came at the right time. So now I'm like totally obsessed with that. Oh, I did um on what bike you could do a. Uh, Cycle five kilometers. Yeah. Yeah. Cycle five kilometers as fast as you can. Donate five quid to the NHS and nominate five people. Yeah. So again, I got into doing that with someone, um, and I won that one. So I cycled it in five minutes and fifty seconds or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then after that, I went outside and vomited in the garden. So, ah, <laughs> right. um, it was horrible. So my wife told me to stop. <laughs> stop doing that. <laughs> I. You did. Do you think there's like a there'll be a trend it's difficult but Glasgow is a bloody wet city but to me it's like geared up to become a cycling city you know it's it's got you're seeing huge investment 
from uh, the council and and putting in uh, cycling lanes and um, Sucky Hall streets now got wider pavements and it's like they're trying to introduce uh, social distancing measures and at the same time cross off the box of getting more cycle lanes and stuff but I think even with the culture of spending more time at home potentially there's there could be a cycling revolution I, I think it could become safer for cyclists but it's getting over the fair weather cyclist thing you know because you've been to like Holland and all these places where it's just like I'm just cycle. But do you think Scotland could ever sort of embrace that culture? Hopefully, I think that'd be great. I think it'd make a lot of sense as well. I suppose where I am, I'm out in Stirling, so and I'm on the edge of Stirling. So there's all these kind of like A roads, I suppose you call them A roads, B roads, and you get a lot of cycling. So there's a huge amount of cycling, but it's it's not commuter cycling. It's just cycling on a on a, a Saturday morning, a Sunday morning, so you see just huge big pelotons of people going by, uh, cycling about. So I definitely see people cycling a lot, and I think there's a massive, um, a massive subculture going on there. Yeah. And you see it on Zwift, you see it on Strava, you can see it on certain apps that people are really into it. The actual commuting cycling, I don't know. I don't think we'll ever be at Holland. I'd, I'd love it for us to be, but I don't think we'll ever be at home. It's just even, even you know, it's, it's mad. Like there's the, there's obviously, you know, we want to, you know, net zero. They band that around a lot. You know, electric cars, Tesla's all about the battery. There's hydrogen cars. I think South Korea, they're huge in investment in hydrogen cars. So hydrogen fueled cars, and all the big uh, oil companies. BP, Shell, Total, Enios, they're all about hydrogen technology. Some of the yeah. real giants about hydrogen technology. But then to me, you're only, you're getting rid of sort of carbon made products, if you like, and carbon transportation. And then you're like, go and invest in battery technology, go and invest in hydrogen technology. And it's more consumerism, right? It's mm-hmm. like, in order to power these electric cars, you're going to have to rip out all this minerals from Bolivia, believe the salt plains of Bolivia. It's like, why don't we just say, let's make it more simple, stay at home, work at home, and cycle more. And and uh, and it's like, why be obsessed with the next uh, trend, and why spend another 30 grand on a brand new car when you can just like strip your life back to be more simplistic? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think it would be amazing. Um, I love Holland. Yeah, I've been to Holland a lot, and it's it's amazing, yeah. but and just how it's such a part of the culture, but Nah, I think we're a wee way off here, unfortunately. I think we are quite a way off of uh, being like that. But I'd love it to happen. I would love it to happen. There's a cool, I think it's Glasgow City Council. You can go on to the website and uh, you can, it's like a heat map and you point out all the places where you see a problem with cycling lanes and, and you put a comment to say, like this street here, it's dangerous because the traffic lights or whatever yeah. uh, are... There's a drop curb here, and it's it's not great for cycling. And then they're going to invest in the places that have got the you know the most critique, if you like, by the public. So there's like yeah. there's like a chunk of money going to it, but it's whether it can change change the sort of culture. It's, it's like your whiskey in a way, right? You can have a lot of these things. You're you're banging your head up against the wall trying to fix things that are just they've always been a certain way, and it'll be very difficult to get that transformational change. I guess, but I don't know. Don't know. But uh, yeah, I just like cycling. It's like uh, it's therapeutic, and it just feels great. You never really have a a bad day on a bike. It's it's good. It's good fun. 
Yeah, go go cycling on Iowa. That's you can have a bad day and a bike on Iowa because yeah, windy, right? Oh <laughs> my god, yeah. So I've I've got like a, a mountain bike. So most of my cycling's just just to stay fit. So it's an exercise bike. Uh-huh. I had a mountain bike for cutting about Oban where I used to live, and then I took it to Iowa, and I got off. I got out of the car on my first day, and I was feeling a wee bit out of sorts. You know, I'd, I still remember it like so clearly. I watched the the Champions League final which was Barcelona against Man U at Wembley, I think. The one Barcelona won 3-1. Wayne Rooney scored a great goal. And I watched that that night and I had like just some food in like a house that was completely empty. Finished that and then next morning just get in my car, drove from Oban to the ferry. So it's an hour and a half drive. And then got the ferry over to Isla and then drove up to like my, my digs, I suppose. And basically all my possessions were getting brought over by a removal truck. So I just had a suitcase and I had my mountain bike. Yeah, yeah. I might be together and I was waiting for the person to come with the key and you know just I just had no idea what was going on so eventually I just I threw my suitcase back in the car and locked it and I went I'll just go for a I'll just go for a cycle so I cycled out and this is genuinely true I'm not making this up now but I cycled <laughs> out across the Coldalton coast so you go by Lafroig and then you go by Lagavulin and then I stopped at Ardbeg so I stopped at Ardbeg at the top of it I didn't go down the hill but I was at Ardbeg distillery and I went that was a nice ride. This is that felt like three, four miles, but I just I just nailed it. And then I turned round. And when I turned round, it was a direct road back as well. And it was like a gale force wind. But I just hadn't <laughs> noticed because I started with it on my back and I hadn't noticed that it was basically just this wind that carried me. And I think I'd got out there in say twenty minutes or something, and it took me hours to get back. Hours. I had to push the bike. She was like around a, an island with a tailwind, no? Just went, right, just, went, just went a straight, I know, just went a straight line and I had the wind by me and I turned around and it was a straight line back and it was horrific, like horrific. But what you're right, like, most of the time, most of the time when a bike's brilliant. What's it like, uh, like on the island, is it like new blood? Do you get, you kind of like a, an incomer or is it very accepted of people in the industry and, and things? Oh, people coming and going all the time. It's a yeah. great place. It's like, like I do everywhere I go in the world. I've moved around quite a bit in my career. Yeah. Lived in America twice. Oh, wow. um, lived up in the north of Scotland. I lived on the south coast of England before I joined the whiskey industry. Um, but wherever I go, you just join the football team. That's what I always did. Join the football team. I go go to training, get in the team, and then you make you know fifteen pounds immediately. Yeah, that's yeah. what I did on Iowa. So. And a great bunch of friends in Iowa and just loved my time there. I was single at the time, so just had like, like loads of activity, loads of freedom. The work was really good, the work was really busy. So I totally embraced, embraced, excuse me, I totally embraced Isla living and had honestly three of the best years of my life. It was just so much fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well, you mentioned like living down in England for the first time. What age were you then? Were you just out of uni or are you? I pretty much just said it's what it'd be. So we better uni. So twenty three, yeah, twenty three. And then I found like I lived in Bristol when I was. Uh, would it be after my fourth year at uni? I think it was did an engineering placement down in Bristol, and like in a way I was like gunning for it, just get a job down in Bristol. They're going to pay a bit of money, you know, save up money before going back to do my final year. And as a Scotsman, you get you you're brought up to be a bit racist, right? You kind of like. You kind of, when England's on the TV, it's like, boo, you know, you, you, yeah. kind of, you want to see them fail. But to go down in England for the first time, it's like, wow, you're surrounded by all these great people. It's like, it's such a, like, uh, I am a proper country bumpkin. I was born in, like, Angus, you know, like proper uh, Tudor type stuff. 
I know I'm a big rugby fan, so you're you're always gunning for England to lose, you know, and it's like it's a horrible thing to to be brought to, to be, but you are a bit racist, right? And you and then going down to England, you're like, wow, these people are exactly the same as us, you know. Just like, <laughs> talk a bit different. They're up for a laugh and they like all the things that we like and culturally they're exactly the same. It's like it's quite a cool uh, cool experience just being around people and you are a foreigner and yeah. in your own country as well it's quite cool yeah it's the same it's, it's same as all the places that i've moved to just i like i loved moving around i loved getting to meet new people yeah realize that they're different from you and now they're just exactly the same yeah, <laughs> all yeah. around the world yeah. everyone's different for certain things but they're actually if you look deep enough they're just exactly the same so I've lived in new york city and then moved from new york to oban which is a small wow. town in scotland and then i moved from oban to isla and, and Diageo, Diageo, I guess, in New York, what was that? Yeah, 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 yeah. But you realise that all these different places, you know, actually, you boil it down, people are exactly the same. What? Yeah, it's, yeah, no, it's amazing, like, just the good in people as well. And, and uh, I, I, I think travelling is just such an immense thing and you want it to come back and people to experience that, you know, and it just opened up people's minds and build empathy and respect for other people, different nationalities. And, yeah, there's a lot of good comes from it, right? It's cool. Totally, totally. Yeah. Huh. but yeah, I uh, I was just getting a message from my wife. I should uh, I should at least either message back or go for it. Nail it on the head. Do you wanna Do you wanna wrap it up or you you're? I, uh, is there anything else like maybe just finish on something cool? Is there anything? Uh, what's What's next for Glenn Ranger? What's next for Brendan? What's What's on the cards the next month? Have you got? Yeah, so for the next month, um, what's next? So for Glenn Moore and Jay, for the rest of the year. Um, we're still making new products. We're still working on cool new experiments. I mean, some of them are here right now. So, but we're still working on some new stuff. So this is a new art bag that we're hoping to release pretty soon. Um, just, just behind me, everywhere you look, you know, I've got various samples that I'm developing for, for new oh, products. Wow. Yeah. So we'll launch them in a more digital way. But yeah. we've got a new art bag in the offing. We've got um, our distillery manager, Mickey Heads, who's been there for, for 13, 14 years, but a legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's retiring in September, so we won't be definitely together, but we're definitely going to make sure we send them off in the right way and do wow. something cool for yeah, him yeah. leaving. And have and you then, got a replacement? Course, you got a replacement for him? Yeah. Soon. Yeah. Soon. Yeah. Yep. We, nah. we, we do to be announced soon. So okay. again, that's really exciting. And then it went more. I was the world exclusive on the, the call here. No, we can't do it. <laughs> afraid not. Afraid not. <laughs> um, and then up at Glenmorangie, yeah, it's, it's been uh, it's, it's been amazing at both distilleries. But Glenmorangie, the way that they got the distillery back up and running, and the way that things are starting to kick on there, there's just and the amount of samples that were taken from there, um, the team there have just been like really incredible. They've really just done like a solid for everyone. So up at Glenmondry, there's so much sampling going on right now where two, three new products will come out this year, one-off products. But yeah. we are working on just like a really cool, um, a really cool brand new way to just talk about Glenmondry and just how delicious a whiskey it is. So that's yeah. taken a lot of work. Uh, the hard work's getting done right now, but you'll see the, the fruits of our labour. You'll see them early in 2021, cool. which I'm really hoping is a way to just sort of confined 2020 to the history books yeah i think we're all we're all keen for that you know it'll be yeah. a, i think it'll be 2021 is going to be a year for the party right we're gonna we're gonna have aye, a lot of fun. Aye, yeah. Aye. <laughs> yeah 
But yeah, no, it was it was fun speaking to Brendan. Yeah, and, it's great uh, talking to you, James. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to coming to visit Tain or up up sometime, get across to Edinburgh sometime and see you. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. see you soon. I'll see you soon. Yeah. This will all be a this will all be a distant memory before we'll you know pret- it. We'll pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, we'll pretend yeah. it didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> a mulligan. Take a mulligan. <laughs> yeah. Okay, tremendous. Enjoy the rest of uh, your lockdown and your week, okay? Cheers, mate. You too. Best. Cheers. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mostly Talk. Next time, I'll be chatting with Michael Fair, director at BIT Recruitment Company. Thanks for listening to Mostly Talk. Find us online at mostly.consulting. And if you enjoyed today's show, why not leave us a review or tell a friend? 